Uh, welcome to Flourishing in Medicine, From Surviving to Thriving. I am your host, Dr. Mick Krasner, and this podcast is brought to you by MPRO, a medical professional liability insurance carrier headquartered in New York State, whose deep commitment and actions to support physicians include many wonderful learning opportunities, this podcast being among them. Today, I'm very excited to share with you my conversation with Dr. Cinda Rushton, the Anne and George L. Bunting Professor of Clinical Ethics and Professor of Nursing and Pediatrics at Johns Hopkins University. Cinda is an international leader in bioethics and nursing. She co-chairs the Johns Hopkins Hospital's Ethics Committee and Consultation Service and is a founding member of the Berman Institute of Bioethics and co-led the first National Nursing Ethics Summit that produced a blueprint for 21st century nursing ethics. She was a member of the National Academy of Medicine's Science and Engineering Committee that produced the report, Taking Action Against Clinician Burnout, a Systems Approach to Professional Well-Being, and is co-creator of the Mindful Ethical Practice and Resilience Academy, MEPRA. The recipient of many awards, she received the Marguerite Rogers Kinney Distinguished Career Award and the Distinguished Researcher Award from the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. She's the editor and author of the book, Moral Resilience, Transforming Moral Suffering in Healthcare, and co-creator of the Rushton Moral Resilience Scale. Her involvement as a student of Roshi Joan Halifax and as a teacher at the Upaya Zen Center has contributed to her phenomenal capacity of not only articulating, but also embodying the role of curiosity integrity, and compassion in the health professions. A champion of health professionals and the patients they serve, please enjoy this wide-ranging discussion of who Cinda is and the very practical ways her thoughts and actions can help us all to flourish in medicine. Well, it's so really nice to see you, Cinda. Uh, it's always nice to talk with you. We have so much to uh, talk about today. And what I'd like to do as a way of beginning is to hear a little bit about what uh, experiences led you to uh, enter healthcare in the first place. You know, the work I've done with uh, colleagues, with students, with other teachers, clinicians, etc. I found some fascinating stories about what really sort of inspired them to move into healthcare. Some of these stories are related to some early experiences. Some of them are related to things that happen further on in education, but I'd love to hear what your, we could call it an origin story is related to the, your work in healthcare. Well, Mick, that's an interesting question because, you know, a lot of times we choose our professions, but I, I really feel like this one chose me. <laughs> I I knew I was going to be a nurse from the time I was probably 11 or 12. Uh, I started when I was in high school working in our physician's office, filling pill boxes, cleaning syringes, and then doing statements just so I could be around patients. <laughs> and then when I was in high school, they had a... Um, program where you could get training as a nursing assistant. So I took that course. And at the end of it, we had a really small community hospital 
that four of us got to be uh, assigned to, and I was one of those. Well, I thought I had just arrived because I was in the hospital and had the chance to start taking care of people who had had surgery and, you know, I didn't know anything really. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the complexity of it. I loved being with the people. And, you know, here I was probably 17 and... I learned about, I saw my first code, my first death. And at first, you know, I was terrified, you know, like, how do you manage all of this? And then I found I was actually really curious about how, how do you support people through those periods of time? You know, I went to nursing school. I worked as a nursing assistant all through nursing school and Midway in that process, I had started out on the adult cardiovascular unit, loved it, thought this is it. I love this. This is what I'm going to do. And then they informed me that that unit was going to primary nursing and we weren't going to need nursing assistance anymore. And so my choices were psych or peds. I was like, wow, I don't know if I want to do either one of those. So I said, okay, well, I'll do peds. Well, of course, I loved it. I thought it was the home run because you could be with kids and they don't want to be sick. And they were incredibly adept in teaching you what you needed to learn. And so that launched me into pediatric ICU when I graduated. And it's just gone on from there. You know, I found myself drawn to the hard cases. I wasn't afraid of the messiness. And then as a clinical nurse specialist, I often was uh, with families having to make hard decisions. And that was what sort of drew me into the ethics work of how do we, how do we help people make decisions they can live with? And of course, right alongside that was how do we accompany them uh, at the end of life? And, you know, in pediatrics, children aren't supposed to die, and yet they do. And so in 1999, I uh, had an opportunity to have a fellowship where I ended up going to uh, Upaya. Zen Center and um, participated in the Being With Dying program. And that was one of the sort of uh, threshold moments in my career of sort of pivoting my whole approach to how to be with people, children, families, adults, through that period of time at the end of life in a, in a very different way. And it's gone on from there. Wonderful. You know, some of the words that came up for me as I'm listening to you is uh, a, a lot of curiosity that was there from an early uh, point, excitement, compassion, and caring. The ethics were kind of built in as you saw practically that being applied. Um, and then what we could call beginner's mind as well. Can you uh, maybe talk a little bit about how those elements, that beginner's mind, that excitement that you describe, 
uh, is still alive in you and and what brings it out for you most that's really interesting because when i think about the first time i i went to upaya i had no idea absolutely no idea what i was going to be stepping into i had never been in a zen center in my life i had never meditated i didn't know what i was doing <laughs> And yet it was the best way to go because I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have a lot of expectations other than I'm on a big adventure here. <laughs> I hope it turns out well. And of course it was, it truly was life-changing to be able to be in a place of receptivity. I think I was very open to receiving what was there. In many ways, it was a validation of what I had intuitively and instinctively been doing with children and families before that. And so there was a kind of nourishment that came from that experience that has propelled me over and over again. When I think about the work that I do, teaching and chairing an ethics committee, Going back to those places where we can be nourished has been how I have sustained myself during my whole career. You know, so there's the the work that you do and the challenges that you're in, but having that place where you can can go back to again and again, and Yupai has really been that. To sort of get reoriented and recalibrated, having a chance to really pause and see what's true now. It has also really, I think, propelled my curiosity. I've always wanted to understand things in a different way, you know, like, so what else is going on here? And <laughs> well, what else is true besides what we keep repeating or or what seems obvious? And so that that has been really generative in terms of just trying to think about, for example, the work that we've done now for decades, uh, looking at the issues of moral suffering and, and how much time we spent describing the problem. And then I kept asking myself, so what else is possible? Is it that we have to be stuck in this suffering forever, or is there a path forward? And that was where it really started the journey in trying to understand this concept of moral resilience and how we could actually preserve or restore our integrity in response to these inevitable ethical challenges in our work as clinicians and how we might be able to actually leverage those qualities in ourselves as a protective resource not to turn away from the hard things, but actually to meet them in ways that didn't degrade our health and well-being and our integrity in the process. And so that's what I've been kind of wallowing around in now <laughs> for, you know, I don't know, eight or nine years, uh, trying to see how we can help clinicians to access what's already inside of them that they've maybe forgotten and to amplify that in ways that helps them to be whole, but also helps the, to sustain them in their professions. I'd like to come back uh, in a bit to the, your work with moral resilience, moral suffering. 
I was hoping you would go there and we can talk a little bit about that. In particular, uh, I think listeners would be curious uh, to hear about the Being With Dying program and the GRACE program there, but also if you can share your own understanding uh, from your lived experience about the connection between the contemplative practices and flourishing as a health professional, nurses, physicians, other health professionals, that connection for you, what it's been like and how you see that maybe uh, as being applied more broadly in whatever way it can be. Yeah, the connection to our flourishing and contemplative practice, I think, is a really important one. And it's unfortunate in some ways that that set of practices has been sort of relegated as optional rather than absolutely central to who we are and how we can be who we are in our roles as clinicians. We know for sure with all the research in neuroscience that when our minds are uh, dispersed and distracted and just unfocused, it uses a lot of energy that we don't have available to us to use in our work in ways that are really beneficial to ourselves and others. And so the practices of being able to notice what's happening in the moment, to be able to calm our nervous system using things like breath and attention and awareness, and also to be able to cultivate the qualities that in Roshi Jones' approach to compassion that allows compassion to arise. And how we do that, not only on the cushion, that's very important, but in our day-to-day moments of how we show up and how we are in the world and how we can use those practices in the midst of confusion and chaos and uncertainty to help us come back home to really having a more clear and intentional uh, stance where we make decisions and and how we exercise our actions. So it it has really, as I as you know, as I look over my own experience, the more that I have practiced, the more resources I feel like I have and that I can access them more easily. Of course, any new skill requires practice. That's why we call it practice. Uh, you never really get anywhere, but the practice is is so important because um, it does build those neural pathways. And then the stronger they are, the more accessible they are. It's also, um, you know, in the Being With Dying program, it truly is a deep dive into the uh, whole territory of what it means to be a human. And that means not only the people we're serving, but ourselves and exploring our edges around our relationship to life and death and suffering and how we might be able to begin to notice our own patterns of how we When fear shows up, when we become defended, when we shut down, when we are open, when we are able to actually be empathic toward another person's experience. And so that 
that container of end of life care, I think really has been a place where people have said to me, oh, you know, focusing on death, it's just so, oh, so depressing. Actually, I have found it to be the best lesson for how to live. And the practices that we do every year, contemplating our priorities, being able to think about and imagine ourselves as an old person and then getting closer and closer to, you know, we don't know when that last moment will be and what is left undone and, and how are we relating to that possibility in ways that actually might be hurting ourselves and others, but also could be transformed in a way that would help us to meet whatever reality we're in. So I feel like a lot of what I've learned about living, I've learned in that space of contemplating the end of life. Your work on professional flourishing in the nursing profession is one of the practical ways that you've provided support to help colleagues build um, skills to support themselves and others. And one of the ways in which you're applying the contemplative practices uh, to help change systemic factors that contribute to burnout that help health professionals, especially nursing, flourish. I think our listeners would also like to hear a little bit about the Mindful Ethical Practice and Resilience Academy, MEPRA, for nurses, uh, how it came about, how it's structured, uh, what are some of the outcomes of that program, mm -hmm. and, and then one more aspect, because I find it really inspiring, can it provide part of a model for a wider application to mixed health professionals? Yeah, MEPRA, it's funny, people ask, you know, how did you get to where you are now? And mostly the answer is, I just said yes a lot. Uh, I didn't really have some grand plan people think you do. I, I didn't. I just continued to pursue the things that I was passionate about that I really mattered to me. And when the opportunity came, I said yes. And so that's what happened with MEPRA. Our dean, uh, Trish Davidson, was uh, concerned that our students were leaving the profession after one year. And she said to me, what, what can we do? And I was like, well, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure we can figure that out. <laughs> and so we created MEPRA, the Mindful Ethical Practice and Resilience Academy. And it was, it is a program that was designed for nurses who had graduated from nurse residency programs and nurses who have been in practice for many, many years. And it was designed really with the core elements being mindfulness. So creating a, a foundation of mindfulness and awareness how we cultivate the qualities that support our resilience and in particular our moral resilience and how we cultivate moral efficacy to respond to ethical challenges. So it's sort of those three pieces. And we created a 24-hour program that before COVID was delivered all in person and it really begins with an exploration of why we're here. You know, uh, what is it that's motivated us to, to choose our profession, nursing in this case? 
how we can reconnect to our values. And I find it fascinating all the time how much we take our values for granted and often have a difficult time articulating them. And so we spend time sort of unpacking what is the anchor for your life and work and how can you use that as both a resource and a guide when you're not sure about what to do. And then how we begin the process of creating a plan of self-stewardship and self-stewardship is uh, the term we like to use that's beyond the sort of self-care language that's been in many ways created a capitalistic billion dollar industry to a much more robust, uh, I think, concept that starts with knowing ourselves and embodying our commitment to our own well-being that acknowledges the limits that we have and approaches them with compassion where we actually choose how we allocate our gifts, our talents, our time in ways that reflects who we are and what matters to us. And then how our choices reflect healthy and wholesome choices. So that process starts at the beginning of MEPRA. And throughout the program, our participants reflect on their moral compass and how well they're living their values, but also an evolving process of creating a self-stewardship plan that actually nourishes them over the period of time. We also focus in on a lot of skills, um, many of them reflective of areas within contemplative practice and mindfulness, perspective taking, the ability to speak up with integrity. We practice communication. We have a high fidelity simulation as a part of this program where we practice those skills in a real life situation. And then how we work with our moral suffering in ways that maybe have the potential to reduce the negative and sometimes really uh, harmful consequences of those situations. And then the last piece is um, using those skills and tools at the unit level to begin to contribute to a culture of ethical practice where it's not just the individual, but you know, in the collective experience in our teams of how we cultivate relational integrity and how we actually begin to spread those skills and practices into our everyday work. So it's been quite a journey. We started in 2016. We've had over 350 nurses who've been through it in lots of different cohorts. We have done research and we have really, I have to say, amazing me results. (laughs) We looked at the impact of this program and had statistical improvements in ethical confidence, competence, work engagement, resilience, mindfulness, and decreases in emotional exhaustion, depression, anger, and intent to leave. And so we're pretty excited about that. Something happened. Uh, We are now uh, partnering with an EAP group in New York to try to scale MEPRA because it was three of us trying to do this whole program. And obviously that's the rate limiting factor. It's been an incredible journey of 
often watching people arrive in a disempowered, discouraged space. And over the course of those typically six sessions, it's like the lotus unfolding. You start to see people remembering why they chose this profession, remembering who they really are and that they matter in this process of delivering care and how they can actually empower themselves to take control over their health and well-being and their integrity and not be you know expecting some external source to do that for them but to see that they actually have the capacity themselves to put themselves on the list of you know consideration and to really decide that they matter and that there are things that I can be in control of that will nourish my well-being, but also nourish my sense of wholeness as a person. I wanted to circle back to moral resilience. It's a word you've used. You've described it as the capacity of an individual to sustain or restore their integrity in response to moral complexity, confusion, distress, or setbacks. And I'd like to just sort of focus in, hone in on one of the words. I'm drawn by the word integrity, which mm -hmm. can mean a lot of things to people. You've used it already in our conversation. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. You can unpack what that means for us and how you conceptualize it in this, in this um, a setting of moral resilience and moral suffering. Yeah, integrity is a big word, isn't it? And it it does mean different things to different people. And for me, the idea of how we can be whole, you know, in the midst of all of this complexity and confusion is is a very important grounding. And so the idea of moral resilience really is grounded in this idea of integrity. Integrity being living our values rather than talking about them, knowing who we are and what we stand for, and being clear about what our values are, being willing to sometimes have the courage to speak up when those values are in some ways threatened or violated, being able to listen to what we call the call of conscience. You know, we've all experienced that twinge of our conscience that starts in our body to alert us to danger, to threats to our integrity, our values. And to cultivate the capacity to actually turn toward that with curiosity. Why is this showing up now? What is it that I'm, I'm not seeing or that I need to pay attention to in this situation that has activated my nervous system to perceive threat? The ability, integrity is to me not about perfection. It's actually about being able to hold our whole experience uh, with, with compassion. And that means our limits and being able to not expect ourselves to solve unsolvable problems and not to expect ourselves to go beyond what is healthy and wholesome for us. And I think integrity also requires us to take action and sometimes inaction is the integrity preserving thing. Uh, it might be that 
compromise, although in our world right now, compromise is viewed as failure. Compromise is a path that can preserve integrity of all people involved. Sometimes our integrity requires us to say no and to refuse to participate in things that truly degrade our our values and our sense of wholeness. And honestly, it also includes deciding to remove ourselves from situations that are not healthy and wholesome, that are toxic. And that's an important one. I think in our professions right now, we we have sometimes felt that saying no or removing ourselves is, you know, we've abandoned ourselves or others. But in fact, it might be that removing ourselves is the right thing to do. Uh, I know in nursing, I've advocated pretty strongly that nurses may need to remove themselves from their jobs. But my hope is, is that they will find another place in the profession where they can serve. And there's so many ways to do that, as opposed to abandoning the whole profession and saying, well, that's not the right thing for me. It might not be. But I think often when we are so depleted, we feel that there aren't any options. And the only thing is to completely sever our connection, which may not be true. And so being able to to use those elements and and skills of mindfulness to be able to clearly discern what is right for me, how can I serve now, is really, I think, a central question. How do I serve now in in this environment? And be open to the possibility that maybe what we thought before needs to be revised. I think integrity, requ- you know, is also requires us to be open to re-examining our assumptions and our beliefs about whatever the situation is. So it, it's a complex and nuanced idea. And I think it also gives us a, a place where we can begin to articulate why the situations that are so problematic to us are causing the distress because it's not just overwork. It's that our values are being challenged in one way or another. And that suffering that we experience in response to that is moral in nature because it involves our values and it involves our sense of identity of who we are and what we stand for. And that is not inconsequential. So being able to name clearly what that source is, is really important. Burnout has become a term that is a catch-all term now for everything that is unpleasant. We need much more precision in what the source is to be able to design interventions to be able to address it. Completely agree with you, Cinda. Um, I was struck by you mentioning saying no, learning to say no. And I what I actually heard the subtext of that is also learning to say yes. I know one of my favorite writers, Anne Lamott, I just enjoy reading a lot of her uh, writings. She says, no, we have to learn that no is a complete sentence. As we're in this discussion with you, I'm beginning to think actually, it's not a complete sentence because it's no, learning to say no, and it's also no and yes to this other 
alternative. This other thing, maybe it means I have to make a change as you described, or maybe it means yes to what we should be focusing on. So thank you for that. I, I, I'm beginning to expand my own understanding of the saying no, which isn't just completely turning away and cutting off. It's, it's a no and yes, both. I want to come back again to your book, Moral Resilience, which for the listeners, it's just a phenomenal book. It's uh, edited in the sense of there's a few other contributors, but it's really your voice throughout that book is very clear and very helpful. Uh, in the introduction, you, you talked about um, our suffering was not something to hide or be suppressed and that we can skillfully work with it so we can transform it and fuel the future of, again, that word integrity and compassion rather than allow it to disable our human goodness and moral community. And, you know, you've come and spent some time with our program, the Mindful Practice in Medicine program, and we use a similar philosophy that seeks to identify strengths and capacities to turn into and transform the pain points experienced by those delivering healthcare. So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about this idea of turning into the difficulties as a way to create a more workable future. As you describe your life, Cinda, it's been a series of yeses to things that for many of us would just seem like obstacles. So yeah, just a little bit about turning toward these difficulties. Yeah, turning toward. I think often as humans, we when things are hard, we want them to go away and we want them to be resolved. And what I realized sort of midway in my career was for some reason, I was actually drawn to those hard places because it seemed like that was where things were most real. And when I was a clinical nurse specialist, I worked with a group of surgeons who really did not like to talk about anything hard. And they would do anything to avoid having to talk with a family about something hard. For whatever reason, I wasn't afraid to step into that place and found myself doing that again and again. Uh, one time, I vividly remember the surgeon having his hand on the doorknob and had just given a family of a teenager a diagnosis of osteosarcoma. And they were just devastated. And he walked out and I stayed. And I spent some time with the family and with the young person and their, their mother. I was really pretty outraged that that news had been given in that way. And so I followed uh, down the hallway and I said, you have to go back. You have to go back and talk to this family. And didn't want to. I said, we are going. And I stood in front of the door so that he couldn't leave. So turning into it is to me facing our fears and being able to, to really be curious about yes, and what else is true and what else is true and what else is possible here. That takes practice to not allow our fear to distract us or to shut us down or to take us out of the room when our instinct is to do exactly that. 
part of that process in in this context of moral suffering is being able to develop a vocabulary that is more precise and more specific to naming what it is that is causing the suffering that is really weighing on us. And what I've seen again and again and again, and if you think about this in the context of Warren Reich's sort of uh, whole phases of suffering, mute suffering is when we are unable to name or even articulate the source of our suffering. Or it can be when we are so overwhelmed with the suffering that we become mute. And so part of this process that we've been in is giving people the space and the support to move from that place of mute suffering into what is a challenging phase of expressive suffering. That's the phase of lament where our voice is often really angry. It is, it is combative. It can be unskillful. It can be loud, but it's important to be able to name the source of our suffering. And then the third phase is transforming that suffering. How do we take that as grist for learning, for being able to deepen our awareness of ourselves and others, to actually harness that in a way that ultimately produces good for ourselves and others? And and that's in many ways, what we've tried to do in MEPRA, that's part of what we do in Being with Dying. And it's really closely related to the work that we do with Grace, which is about creating the conditions that support the ability for compassion to be manifest. And so it's been a thread for sure in all of those programs. As you describe this expressive suffering really being real, uh, and then the transformation that can occur as we begin to identify, name, express, that there's also, there's also some beauty in the expressions, can be beauty in the expressions, especially when we listen to, say, for example, melancholy music, there's a certain kind of beauty. One thing I know about my experience with you is that when, when someone is with Cinda Rushton, it's real. It's, um, it's, it's, that's all I can say. It's real. It's also fun, but very real. And there's something very honest and authentic, and it's refreshing to be in that, in that orbit with you. So thank you. I'd like you, if you can, to unpack a little bit about this approach for large scale change that you write about in the book, conscious full spectrum approach, and how this vision could be employed for cultivating uh, more resilience and even making change for a healthier uh, health professional workforce, meaning in our work, satisfaction, joy, and better quality of care. Well, it's a great question. And trying to think about how do we actually change the cultures and the systems we're in is not an easy, not an easy answer. And if it was, we would have done it a long time ago. What I appreciate about this approach, and it was really created by Monica Sharma, who was at the UN for 20 years in charge of leadership and capacity building. And she's used it all over the world to address really challenging questions, you know, how we address human trafficking, uh, HIV, AIDS, other things that are big 
problems. And what I appreciate about it is it we tend to start with tactics instead of starting first with who am I being? How am I showing up? And how will my values be the anchor for everything that I do? And that work has resonated so much for me in terms of aligning it with our individual values and our individual purpose for being and how we can use that collectively. What I've seen again and again in using this model, and we did it at the University of Virginia for three years, we worked together starting first in, you know, bringing people together to reflect on who are we? Why are we here? What is it that binds us together? That when we stand together, it harnesses that value, that sense of purpose in a way that fuels us to make change. So that's the beginning. Then the next part is having a systematic way to identify the patterns in the organization or in the situation that we're trying to change. So for example, in well-being, we have a lot of system drivers that impact the well-being of, of people in the system. We have reimbursement, we have all kinds of um, issues around resource allocation, we have electronic medical records, the list goes on and on and on. And being able to hone down on among all of those things, what is a pattern that we can identify in our organization that if we were to change it from, say, for example, a pattern would be ineffective communication around goals of care for a patient. If we were to actually be able to shift that so it was a routine conversation, that would begin a process, if you think about a fractal, of change within that organization. The methodology then is to identify those particular patterns that we want to focus on, documenting you know, what they are, and then from there to design what the actual intervention would be to change that pattern. So it's an inside out process. It's not starting with, oh, now we're going we're gonna to make everybody ask this series of questions. Well, this would say we start first with articulating why it matters and how it connects to who we are and what we stand for as clinicians, respect for all persons. And then that becomes the anchor for saying, you know, there's a pattern in our organization that is actually degrading that respect for not only the patients, but others. And here are the ways then that allow us to be able to change some aspect of that. And of course, there's measurement of how that happens, which is always a challenge. But in the process, we have encouraged people to think about how do you capture the immeasurable, not just the things that we can count, but the other parts of our human experience. So um, it's it's been a really fascinating process. And one of the big areas that I've learned from Monica um, in terms of a leverage point for change is around the narrative. Noticing what we say about ourselves, what we say about others, what we say about our work and how that can be contagious 
both in the positive direction and the negative direction. So if you want to change something, notice what people are saying about it. And I've been doing some really interesting work on this with nurses about how we talk about ourselves. And if all we talk about is everything that's wrong, that's what we're going to give energy to. We have to notice the whole picture, which includes the things that we do that actually produce good and not overlook them or dismiss them as somehow I'm just doing my job. We've got to capture all of that so that it gives us the fuel and the focus to make change. I want to ask maybe two more questions. Uh, uh, one is really, I'd like you to share a narrative, uh, a story when you experienced a deep sense of of joy, what we could call eudaimonic happiness in your professional work, that Aristotelian notion of uh, flourishing, of living well, of real meaning, something that's happened recently, something that's happened a long time ago that was formative, whatever you'd like to share. I'd love to hear about that. Gosh, there's so many. The situation that comes to my mind right now is in the context of an ethics consult where we were called uh, about a case that involved a patient who had been uh, in the hospital for a long period of time, had been in and out of the intensive care unit, had multiple system involvement, including a, an infection that was not responding to the treatments. And the team felt like they were at the end of what they could do. They felt that she was probably dying soon. She was not from America and uh, language was a barrier. And yet we were interacting with her through an interpreter. And I remember walking into her room expecting to see someone who was near death. And what I saw was a person that was as alive as everyone else standing there. And instinctively, for whatever reason, we had to put gowns on. And I walked in and we sort of met each other. And I instinctively took her hands in between mine through the interpreter asked her about, was she in pain? And she said, no, I'm not, I'm not really in pain. And asked her, what, what was the most troublesome thing to her right now? And it was, she wanted to eat. And she had had a trach and she had a, had a, had a feeding tube. She wanted to eat. And so through this, this conversation with her, we learned what mattered to her most was she wanted to be with her family and she wanted to eat. And that she wasn't probably dying immediately at all, that she had a pretty complex medical situation. And there was something in that moment of being with her where I knew she had a faith tradition just by the history. And so I asked our chaplain, I asked her, would it be okay if he prayed? And so he did. At the end of it, I asked her, was there anything she wanted us to know? And she said, thank you for listening to me. And I remember walking out of her room thinking, I never expected anything that just happened in there. And yet it was such a 
real, again, a very real experience of coming in without an agenda. I didn't know how it was going to be. And ending up being so surprised and then being able to share that with the team and later with her son and who was struggling mightily about, you know, is my mother going to die? And so I asked him, tell me about what you would be doing in your country in this time. And he said, well, we would be eating something that was sort of like a, a you know, like a gruel of some sort. And I said, you know, she said that what she really wanted was to eat and she wanted to be with you. And he started to cry. And I said, you know, I see how much you love your mother. And he said, you know, she's the rock in our family. And it was like, who knew? I'll tell you, just listening to that story has me inspired to to listen better, to become a better listener, because, um, you know, that's to be seen and to have a sense of belonging, to be really, truly heard. Well, I'd like to know what you like to do for fun, how to take care of yourself, <laughs> what you do to take care of yourself. Uh, and, it, you know, if you're like me, it's not that far from the work things that I do, you know, it's, uh, uh, so it can be related to work. You know, it's interesting. People say, oh, you know, isn't that work uh, overwhelming? Sometimes, but mostly it's nourishing. If, you know, when you're doing what you love and what you're here for, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a burden, really. I get a lot of energy from being with students, with being with my colleagues, with being with patients and families. There have been plenty of times when I've been in my office across the street from the hospital and I'm feeling, oh gosh, you know, I just can't put one foot in front of the other. And I'm like, I have to go, I have to go across the street and be with the people where the things are happening, where it's all messy and it's great. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's that. I love to travel. I love to go to places where I haven't been before. And my favorite thing is to really go where the local people are and to see their art and their craft. I'm a knitter. So I, I really appreciate the effort it takes to create beauty out of fibers and art. So I love that part, you know, and I, I love being in nature. I love to, um, I love Datcher Keltner's, uh, you know, sort of taking an all walk. I've actually been doing that with some nurses uh, this the last year or so and having them take an awe walk and everyone takes a picture of something that has produced awe and we've created this montage. It's just noticing just how those moments that kind of take your breath away in one way or another, just like, ah, it just shifts you out of whatever's happening, even if it's just for a moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so great to allow yourself to to pause and take in you know where is the all moment right now and Hmm. how that you know i i like to think about you put it in your pocket for later (laughs) in addition to the moment you're in so that you know you can you can come back to that feeling of of awe and how it can can actually be a nourish it nourishment to us uh maybe when we're not feeling we're in that space 
quite so much. Yes, it is so nourishing. And this conversation has been very nourishing and I think awesome. It's for me, it's been full of some awe and some revelations as, as well. So I want to thank you so much again. Thanks for listening. We will include a summary of today's podcast and links about Dr. Rushton and other references that were discussed in the show notes. I would like to conclude by sharing another practical exercise to help you flourish during your workday. I hope you can add this to others that I've shared in prior episodes and create a toolbox of skills that you can draw upon to enhance purpose, meaning, and well-being. So this exercise comes out of the poignant clinical vignette just shared by Cinda earlier in the podcast. It involves the practice of deep listening. And it can be practiced not as a separate activity in your life, but during actual moments in which you are in relationship, in conversation with another person or a group of others. And the way to start is simply to tell yourself, right now, I'm going to engage in a deep listening practice. So there you are in conversation with a family member, a loved one, a colleague, a patient. And the instructions are fairly simple. There are just three steps I'd like you to keep at the forefront. You can write these down on an index card and keep them with you until this practice becomes learned and more a habit. The first instruction is set an intention to truly and deeply listen. The second instruction, notice, but do not act on the impulse to interject with your own story, an interpretation, or advice. And then finally, the third step is to allow your authentic voice, including curiosity, interest, desire to understand better, the authentic feelings that arise you as you listen to inform your speaking, your response, and your part of the conversation. So it's not just a quiet listening. You are actually engaged with these three instructions and intention to truly and deeply listen. Notice, but don't act on the impulse to interject your own story or, or interpret or give advice, and then allow that authentic voice to come out of curiosity, out of an interest to understand further, out of your authentic feelings that arise. I hope you found this podcast and this simple exercise useful to you, and I look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Flourishing in Medicine, From Surviving to Thriving. If you'd like to learn more about MPRO, please visit www.mympro.com myempro.com. And for more information about me and my work, please visit my personal website, www.mickkrasnermd.com or www.mindfulpracticeinmedicine.com. See you next time.